The pandemic has hit us hard, and healthcare workers are our first and last lines of defense. So while they're looking out for us, who's looking out for them? There has never been a more critical time to address the mental health of our healthcare community. This is Lift the Mask, voices of heroes in the silent pandemic. Join the Quell Foundation and Hartford Health's Dr. John Santopietro as we provide a podcast for healthcare workers discussing their psychological traumas associated with continual exposure to the COVID-19 pandemic. Hello, my name is John Santopietro. I'm a psychiatrist and I am the physician-in-chief at the Behavioral Health Network of Hartford HealthCare, headquartered in Hartford, Connecticut. During the pandemic, I have been part of a team providing support to healthcare workers on the front lines, and I have a particular interest in making sure that their stories get told. The Quell Foundation has put together this podcast in order to lift up the voices of those on the front lines as a way of reaching those who are still out there in the hope that they will be inspired to reach out for the help and support that is there for them. While there's been a lot of reporting about the pandemic in the news and even about the front lines of healthcare, what's unique about this podcast is that you get to hear the stories from the people that lived it and actually are still living it. I would also encourage other leaders to listen into this podcast because there are many lessons and clues about what makes good leadership in a pandemic and a crisis. It is my pleasure to welcome you to Lift the Mask, Voices of Heroes in the Silent Pandemic. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. And I'm really pleased to be here to be able to spend some time with Sarah, who is a a nurse and she's working on her DNP doctorate and is a nurse practitioner. Thank you, Sarah, for being here with us and spending some time on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So we usually start with just asking people where they were. You know, it seems like a while ago in a way, over a year ago, when the pandemic hit. And in particular, really interested in hearing from you about how you were in a role that you called in between. What did you mean by that? So my role in March of 2020 was as a clinical nurse education specialist. And I covered the entire hospital at night, so the off shift. I really was one of the only leadership presences at night, and we kind of heard that the pandemic was happening elsewhere. We were kind of waiting for it to come to our hospital. Um, Every day there was kind of a report out that was sent, do we have any of these patients? Um, And once the patients started coming, we had to roll out our PPE plan, really trying to get staff to understand what was recommended for different patients, um, whether they were on a ventilator, whether they were on CPAP, or whether they were just breathing on their own. And so I was bringing the messages from leadership to the staff and trying to encourage them to trust the leadership. And the staff were reading Facebook and listening to the news and not wanting to trust anybody. And they, they saw in Italy, they had full body suits on and hazmat suits, and that's what they wanted. And really having to find a way to convince them that we were doing our best to protect them. 
Wow, what an interesting role to be in. So, I mean, for people not in healthcare, nurse educator, incredibly important role because, you know, medicine is always changing. There's new processes, there's new equipment, you know, and, and that's standard work, right? Get people together as an educator. This is the new thing that's coming down the pike and, or this is something we need to refresh, you know, how do we do codes and stuff? So you're in that role when, you know, the virus hits, the pandemic hits, and there's information all over the place. Do you wear a mask? Do you not wear a mask? What kind of mask? So you were in the role of having to explain that to people. Yes. And to explain droplet versus, you know, contact versus aerosol versus um, airborne. And unfortunately, I think the news was kind of summing everything up as airborne. And that wasn't necessarily, that's not what COVID is or was. And I mean, it was exhausting because I was I was trying to figure it out myself, right. and I felt like I was just I I decided pretty early on that I was just going to trust the head of our infectious disease department. Whatever he told yeah. me was best practice is what I was going to trust because there's too many other people I could have gone to and too many other messages I could have gotten, and so it was really best for me to be able to message to the staff if I had one source of information. But the staff really, as much as they always trusted me and they would come to me for anything prior to this, I was suddenly almost like an enemy. Like I was trying to prevent them from fully protecting themselves. So it was a really emotionally challenging. I went home many nights in tears just because I felt like I was, everything was questioned and nobody trusted me anymore. Wow. So I, I want to sort of slow it down a little bit because there's so much in there. So, you know, so you had yourself to figure out what do I believe, right? Because this is all new and there's lots of sources of information. So you said you went through a process of figuring out, you know, checked everything out. News is coming faster. Like, and then you settled on, you had someone directing infectious disease that you found to be trustworthy. Is that right? Yes. And that helped you get centered. You're like, okay, I think I know the best information today. This is a person, this is a department I trust. Then on the other side, the people that you're educating, you said Facebook, they're getting information from all over? Yes. <laughs> and when when you say it was exhausting, I mean, you know, it seems like maybe all of it was exhausting. You had to kind of keep up on it yourself. You had to do your own. And then to have to deal with people who you said aren't trusting you. How did you deal with that? I think that I have a pretty pretty good sense of myself and a pretty good ability mm-hmm. to recognize that this is, I mean, Honestly, at the time, I thought this was temporary. I thought this is not going to last forever. This is only going to be a short period of time. Just get through this, get to the other side, and everything will go back to normal. And I think that's what so many people had. And then we realized after six months and nine months, we're still waiting for normal to happen again. And so mm-hmm. I exhausted all of the reserves that I normally have for myself. And um, I got through it by expecting it to not last forever. <laughs> well, that's a good. that's not a bad strategy. Although in this case, like you said, it kept going on. And, and, you know, I, I think really the first person we've talked to that's been in that role, you know, because most of the people we've talked to have, you know, given the experience from the front lines where you're not sure, you know, what to believe. And, and you're talking about, like, I guess that's what you meant by in between. So you're in between the folks on the front line and the leadership and clinical leadership in the hospital. And did that at some point start to get better? Did, you know, did the nursing staff start to kind of generally develop more trust or was it just difficult the entire time? I think it was pretty difficult 
through most of it. I think that what happened was leadership actually started trying to protect staff more. Um, I don't think that they were doing it wrong in the beginning. They were really following the guidance and mm-hmm. really concerned about supplies. They they really, there was that that legitimate concern for supplies, lack of supplies. And so as time went on and we did have more supplies, we, you know, gave people goggles. And so you you wear goggles when you're patient facing. The patients also are supposed to wear a mask when they're facing us. And it's not just COVID patients, it's all the patients. Um, so I think that leadership kind of ramped up their allowance of, of staff wearing PPE mm. and at some point resigned themselves to the fact that the staff were going to do what they felt they needed to do. And so if wearing an N95 for your entire shift when you are taking care of non-COVID patients is how you want to protect yourself, go ahead and do it. So that was important that there were, you felt like there was a shift at some point, you know, people started leaning toward doing things that, that people would perceive as keeping them safe. Yeah. And I think there was, a, there was a lot of conversation I had with leadership who, you know, some, some people got to work from home for a lot of this or spend some days working from home because it's better to not be in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Although our hospital really kept people mostly in place. Um, a lot of people did work from home more than usual. And so trying to explain to them that the evidence says this, but as somebody who's never been through a pandemic, who's watching people die on the news, you can't, the two don't match. And so at some point you have to meet them where they are. They're never going to meet you where you are if you're sitting in your office in another building. So really trying to bring leadership to understand where the staff are. It it may be completely irrational to want to wear an N95 Mm -hmm. your whole shift, and it may not match any of the evidence, but why not let them? So you really were in between both both directions. So you yes. were you were transmitting, you know, information and rules to the front lines, but you're also communicating the other way, representing people on the front lines to leadership. And that's a tough job to do. I'm thank you for doing it. Uh, you know, are you still in that role by the way? Yeah, so halfway through last year, I guess it was around July, they asked me if I would jump into one of the daytime positions that was open for one of the educator um, one of the educator roles. And so I did that and um, have been doing that ever since. So I've, I'm still an, a nurse educator, but I cover two very specific units, um, large units mm-hmm. and working daytime for the first time in 18 years. So, Well, that's good. I mean, th- and actually that, you know, back to what you're saying before. So all of this at the beginning of the pandemic, you were doing on nights. Yes. So, and and that's when a lot of stuff happens and, and, you know, there can be a lot of emotion and, you know, and, and, and you even said, I think that you, there were times you would just go into your office and cry. I mean, that gives a sense of just how much stress you were carrying. Did that amount of stress reduce over time or has it been steady the whole time? I think the way I think about it is that the stress there was a lot of stress just wondering how bad is it going to get. Then there was the stress with the PPE. And so if your stress level is normally around 30% and you're able to fluctuate, you know, handle up to 80%, you know that it's going to go back down to 30%. I would say that our stress level through this has, my stress level personally has maintained around like the 60 to 70% range. And so it's a little bit less and it's less acute, but it's like this chronic high level stress that you almost don't even recognize anymore because it's been there for so long. Do you see that in your nursing colleagues as well? We, one of the things we're all concerned about, as we should be, is is burnout. I mean, what are you seeing as an educator? What, what are you seeing out there? I am seeing this a lot. I think that there was a lot of nurses who 
might have retired in two to three years, mm-hmm. retired, kind of just there was no question about it and they retired. There are a lot of people who um, normally would come to work and, you know, you have tough days, but really puts their best foot forward and, and can can handle it are just, they just throw their hands up and they have no ability. I, I think that that's what I'm seeing is that there's no ability to handle the bad days because it mm-hmm. you've been handling so many bad days in a row. And so a really bad day comparatively is just, you just don't even know how to handle that. I see that in myself personally, but I also see that in the profession in general. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really, you know, the way you tell the story brings home, I mean, it's stressful enough to be in a pandemic, to be worrying about, you know, getting sick and having to see all this suffering and death and, but the changing messages about what is safe, what's, you know, what's this current standard. And even today, as we're talking, you know, we're still, there's debates about, um, you know, if you've been vaccinated, wearing masks, do you need to wear a mask when you're out in public versus... So even still, there's the uncertainty, I guess, is a word. And I, I mean, I, I just imagined you hadn't had to deal with that much uncertainty as an educator. Usually an, as an educator, like this is the stuff we know and I'm going to help you you learn it. You know, one of the things I've asked people because I'm in leadership in healthcare, do you have any, you know, are there things you learned along the way or observations or recommendations you would have to leaders, you know, what makes a difference, and especially in a crisis situation, you know, between good leadership, not so good leadership? I mean, I think that recognizing there, there was a lot of nurses who I heard say, like, you know, I didn't sign up for this. As a nurse, I did not sign up for putting myself in danger. And I kind of feel differently. I feel like you go into medicine knowing that anything can happen and, and a pandemic is possible. It, you know, no one expected it necessarily in our lifetime, but pandemics are possible and, and really anything is possible. You can get, you know, a needle stick and get hep C from that. There's lots of different things that can happen. But I think leadership took the stance of you went to nursing school, you're a professional, this is what you signed up for, and not everybody is there. And so I think that leadership recognizing that it may be a while since they've been on the clinical front lines, so they can't possibly know what this is like. And they're their perspective is very far removed, even if their office is only, you know, you know, a building away. They're very far removed from the experience. I'm far removed from the experience of the frontline workers. I, I get some of it. I do go into codes and I help when there's a crisis, but I am not doing this day in and day out, taking care of patients and potentially exposing myself and my family to this virus, which is terrifying to a lot of people. And so I think recognizing that everyone is in a different place and to say it's not that bad or we're lucky that we weren't hit as hard as New York. Mm-hmm. It's like saying that, you know, well, at least you only have this kind of cancer and it's not mm-hmm. terminal cancer. It's it's cancer, you know, so that's kind of where I think leadership missed the mark in some cases. Well, that's really helpful, actually, because a lot of us in, in healthcare, the leaders have started off doing clinical work. So you're saying always be aware of and recognize, you know, how far away from the clinical work have you become in your, you sort of drift into your into your role and to recognize that and be aware of that and not be, I guess, tone deaf as part of it and, and to show up. That's really helpful. So in, in speaking of roles, you know, uh, you, you are now uh, studying for your doctorate in nursing, nurse practitioner, and interested in, in psychiatric nurse practitioner, right? Yes. And what's the story there? How did you get interested in that? 
Oh, there's lots of lots of ways that I could I could <laughs> lead myself to that. One of the first things is that I had an experience myself with my son, mm-hmm. who um, when he was younger had a traumatic experience and mm-hmm. developed significant anxiety related to it. And I, mm-hmm. as somebody, I, I I think that I'm somewhat emotionally intelligent, had some you know experience mm-hmm. with seeking mental health treatment myself. I recognized that he needed some some cognitive behavioral therapy and really just kind of working through this. And so finding him a therapist for a nine-year-old was a full-time job, even though I was working full-time. It was really challenging. It was uncomfortable. It was, you know, some family didn't really think that it was necessary. It just was very, it was a, a huge struggle. So there's that. Well, I that's also, a big one for a sec, if, if you don't mind, just for a sec. Yeah. Because I, I, I think you're speaking to something that a lot of people experience in mental health care, which is, you know, I mean, imagine if he broke his leg and, you know, he needed to have a surgery and a, you know, pin inserted or something like that. There wouldn't be all this other stuff. Where do I go? I can't find a place. Does insurance pay for it? Some of the family don't think that he needs to have to see the doctor about his leg. So there's all this additional uh, stuff that you really, you know, speak to. And you still, it's not, I mean, that was a while ago. Yes, that was, um, so that was third grade for him and he's a freshman now in high school. Wow. school. So that was a while ago and you still remember it. Like that was really. I remember every, every aspect of how challenging it was and how as a mom, I felt so frustrated that it was so hard to get him treatment that I knew without question he needed. So how does that relate to you um, wanting to be a psychiatric nurse practitioner? So my my hope, um, I ultimately want to go into you know some kind of private practice and and become a therapist as much as I can. But in the beginning, I would like to work in a pediatric office and try to integrate the um, mental health treatment with the primary care pediatric treatment because everybody takes. I mean, the majority of people take their kids to the pediatrician and mm. do it regularly, and that is the time in everyone's life when you are seen the most by the doctor because that's yep. what you're supposed to do. Yep. And so if if you have a, a mental health therapist who is there and able to kind of check in with some high-risk families or just be a source of information for families, I think that it would get utilized and probably each pediatrician's office could use five or six of them. And um, so that's where I, I want to start because that would have been incredible to have for my son. You could have just walked right in there. So that literally cuts right across a lot of that, those barriers, because you go right into, you know, the medical system, everybody has a pediatrician. Did did you know that back then that you wanted to do it or sort of occurred to you along the way? It kind of, as I, as I recognized that I really wanted to ultimately become a therapist, I already received a master's through work and they weren't going to pay for another master's. And so I was like, Mm -hmm. well, how can I get to become a therapist. And so I was like, well, I could become, I could get a doctorate mm-hmm. and tie a psychiatric mental health NP with that. And then I would be right there. So it's this long convoluted route and I'll get more education than I need, but I think it would be, it'll be good. So, and you said, you know, there's a couple ways into the story about how you've arrived at wanting to be a, you know, envisioning the future as a psychiatric nurse practitioner. One of them had to do with your son. One of them had to do with your own experience in treatment, which I think is a really, really interesting story. So what, where does that start? When I was in high school, I had an eating disorder that I ended up becoming hospitalized a couple of times. And went to therapy as an outpatient because that's what I had to do. That was part of the agreement with my parents. And in order Mm. to be allowed to go to college, I had to go to therapy. And so I did it and I hated it. And I thought it was 
um, mm. a waste of time and I saw no point in it. And while I had maintained weight and was no longer in a dangerous place with my, with my medical condition, I was still actively eating disordered. I, I had lots of the behaviors of someone with an eating disorder. And so I, that was, that was the part where I thought that mental health was, or psych, psychiatric treatment was just kind of a lot of money and didn't do much. Can I, I can I break in for a sec to that? Because, sure. you know, again, I'm so I'm a psychiatrist and been doing it for 25 years. And so there's different versions of what people are used to in terms of exposure to mental health treatment. The most common is no exposure, right? Right. Uh, the most common. Then there's a fairly common story like yours, which is especially if they were involved in it as a kid, which is it was forced on them. They, it wasn't really their choice at all. Either they just totally rejected it or they kind of, you know, made it look like they were agreeing to it. But in general, they look back on it and don't feel that it was helpful. You know, other people may disagree and say, oh, well, it was helpful. But their, you know, their experience is it wasn't helpful and they're not looking to do it again. So that that was basically your experience through those years? Yes, that was definitely my experience. Okay. And I think, and, I mean, my my parents were scared for me and, and sure. I medically was was not well. And so I needed to, there needed to be an intervention, but the experience I had was not good. Yeah, no, it's important to point that out. I mean, there's different points of view from their point of view. And, and I can imagine that the doctors were telling them that this is the treatment that, you know, their kid needed and, and it was dangerous. And, but it gets to the experience of care too. You know, I think one of the issues with um, that we need to continue to improve, and I'm glad you're going into the field, is the experience of care. That's what you were talking about. Sort of like that triple aim. You know, one one of the things of the triple aim is the experience of care for the people that are in it. So then I have to get to the story of the Disney vacation, but both because we love Disney and like, how did that? How does the story of the Disney vacation in adulthood connect to to treatment for you? Yeah, so I uh, I'll talk about the I had one more experience with um, therapy in between those uh -huh. two where I was in college I was almost done and still very much um, eating disorder but also um, kind of recognizing some significant depression and got to a point where I I was either going to I was having a lot of suicidal thoughts mm -hmm. and was either going to follow through with them or not and the only way that I could see not following through with them is telling somebody about it. And so I went to, I was uh, at the University of Pittsburgh and I went to Western Psych and told them that I had these thoughts and they connected me to a therapist. And so I saw her for the next six months until I graduated. And that was a really, that was, that was therapeutic. It wasn't great. It wasn't life-changing, but I certainly am still alive. Yeah. So, that, you know, it, it maybe was life-changing, um, but she put me on medication and really kind of helped me recognize that medication is sometimes a necessary thing for people. I remember yeah. I remember going to fill it at the Rite Aid across the street from my apartment. I remember how embarrassed I was and how yeah. ashamed I felt. Yeah. But it, that was the beginning of kind of recognizing that this can help. And you went in on your own. So even though you had that experience, which wasn't a good experience for you in childhood, it was you yourself that got yourself into this counseling. The suicidal thoughts and hopes were really scary. I mean, that yeah. was that was a, a feeling that I don't wish on anybody. Yeah. And it still scares me that I was that thoughtful about it um, and grateful that I had enough presence of mind to walk to Western Psych. Yeah. 
that's a that's amazing that you were able to do that. Do you remember how you were able to sort of recognize that and decide to get into treatment? Do you remember that? I have a lot of fuzzy memories of that mm-hmm. time frame. I was um, mentally not well. I amazingly made it through nursing school really well, but mentally was not well. And so everything is kind of fuzzy, but I do remember recognizing that if I don't go talk to somebody, I won't be here to graduate. And then again, you know, even though you'd had that experience, it wasn't great. You got yourself into treatment and you see it as life-saving, but still not the best experience. It just, it didn't, it, it kept me alive, which mm-hmm. was great. It put me on, um, she, she put me on medication, which was great. And there was nothing wrong with her. I kind of felt like my, the way I was um, depressed, having an eating disorder was something that was just always going to be with me. That was, that was who I was and what my life was. And just living with that is, was what was going to happen. I, I couldn't possibly imagine that anything specifically talking to somebody was going to take any of that away. So in the story doesn't end there. And I gave a teaser with the Disney vacation. So. Yeah. So I have um, two boys and a husband and my parents were gracious enough to take us on a Disney vacation once when everybody was young. And it was, it was a nice vacation, but it was a lot of challenges that I had with mm-hmm. just managing being around everybody for that period of time, you know, different parenting styles, not being able to put boundaries for some things and just really kind of being challenged by that. So mm-hmm. a couple of years later, they wanted to take us to Disney again. And I really wanted to enjoy this time with my kids and my husband and my family and decided to find a therapist to help me figure out how to do that. I had a a running friend that um, we ran all the time and we didn't really talk about therapy. We didn't talk about mental health or the fact that I was on medication still or anything, but somehow it came up that she saw a therapist in the past. And so I asked her to get a name for me. And she found this person's name and I immediately was turned off by the fact that it was a man because I said, how can a man possibly give me any advice? How does he, how is he going to know where I'm at or what I'm, where I'm coming from? And I lost his number about three times. She gave it to me. I lost it. And then I finally, finally called him and she, she even said, I'm not getting it for you again. If you, if you lose it this time, you clearly don't want to see a therapist. And that initial what I thought was going to be three to four months of just kind of getting through a vacation, feeling better about the vacation and maybe a follow-up session after turned into six years with this therapist. So, wow. So the couple of things that really strike me, one is this sort of progression step by step, you know, and, and one of the aspects of the podcast is people are talking about treatment and it's so much more powerful to hear it as people talk about their experience of it than if I say something about it. And this is really unique, you know, treatment that was pretty, let's call it heavy duty. You know, when you're a kid, don't love it. Then, you know, when you're in college, you realize you're really, you know, suffering and recognize it, get yourself into treatment, see it as life-saving. Still wasn't, you know, something you wanted to continue, let's say. Then there's this progressive level of sort of insight, it seems to me, right? And there's like, you had a vacation, wasn't so great. You're going to have another vacation. You want it to be better. So you see, why don't I try some therapy? And then kind of ambivalent about it, like you said. And then you, f- you finally connect with this therapist. And now it's then the six years of counseling happened after that. So what was that about? Because it wasn't about the vacation at that point. What did it turn into? So it's funny because, you know, part of, I think, the challenge with starting therapy 
and from what I talked, I now talk about therapy, like, like I'm talking about what I had for breakfast. I mean, it's, it's, yep. I talk about it all the time now. One of the biggest challenges is like that first few sessions where you're just like spilling your guts and telling your whole backstory and, and things that you don't think are a big deal. The therapist is like, wait a minute, let's, can we talk about that some more? Because that seems significant. You're like, oh, it's just, I didn't need a disorder when I was younger. It's no big deal. Or I moved every three years. It's no big deal. You know? Yeah. Um, so there was a few sessions like that. And then it was kind of like, okay, well, I'm going on this vacation soon. I need you to get me through it. And so there was some brief commentary about like ways that I could mm -hmm. experience the vacation without getting too sucked into family dynamics and mm -hmm. still being able to enjoy, you know, my kids and, and my family. But really it just, I mean, I don't even know how it, how it went along or how it lasted as long as it did, but I will honestly say that I, when I started therapy, I was still very much um, actively eating disordered. You know, when mm -hmm. I was pregnant with my kids, I was, I was mm -hmm. healthy because I really wanted my kids to be healthy. But any other time I really struggled with normal eating and being able to, to not, I, I um, was more bulimic than not, and really mm -hmm. just felt like that was going to be part of my life for the rest of my life. And Interesting. Didn't really see any way out of it. Didn't really know what could have possibly gotten me there. I thought maybe this is just the way my brain is. I've got this, you know, weird wiring. And even with the medication, it doesn't go away. And a few years into the therapy, I realized, I so I used to keep a calendar where I would put a an X on days where I actively, you know, purged. Mm -hmm. And if there wasn't an X, that meant that I had a day without it. And mm -hmm. I, you know, and I started to recognize about three years into therapy that I had multiple days in a row and then it was weeks and then it, and, and then it was a year and wow. it, it had been about eight months of nothing when I finally told him that like all this time I've been still eating disordered and now I'm not. And he was just like, wait a minute. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's so powerful. I mean, I mean, a lot of people don't, know how to think about does therapy really work right a lot of people say well does it really work and it's a hard question to answer you know i mean it's hard to say sometimes and you know sometimes it actually gets worse before it gets better sometimes other people think it's working like your parents you know when you're younger and you're you don't really you maybe disagree that's a pretty clear i mean it seems to me as i hear you say it example of of it working. And and when I say it, I mean, you're a big part of it, right? Like you working in therapy with the therapist who it seems like was a good or is a good therapist want to ask you about that. I want to go back to, so really it started as a practical, I need to get through this vacation. Do you even remember, by the way, were there like some strategies about getting through that vacation? Yeah. So he, and, and I actually laughed at him and thought it was a ridiculous idea, but he recommended that I go into the vacation with the mindset of an anthropologist where I'm going to study a culture, a hmm. tribe, and I'm living among them and I need to integrate enough to participate in daily activities, but I'm never going to be really, you know, I'm never going to speak all their language and I'm never going to like practice their religion, but I really need to be enmeshed in there enough. And then anything that doesn't really make sense, you can kind of jot down in a journal and say, wow, isn't that interesting? And come at it from a right. place of curiosity rather than personal attack or feeling left out or feeling like you don't fit in. 
I laughed at him, which I feel bad about. <laughs> I said, okay, sure, I'll try that. And then I went home and told my husband and said, this is the most ridiculous thing. I can't believe I'm paying for this advice. <laughs> and my husband said, actually, that's genius. And I was like, of course you would think that was genius. And my husband used it and I used it as well. And we really enjoyed the vacation and it was a much different experience. I mean, you know, even that is a really powerful story. I mean, so I, what I'm doing is making a mental list of, in, in as you describe your experience of therapy, what are the things, the actual sort of techniques that, you know, that happened? And that one I would characterize as helping you think about a frame of mind to be in in a difficult situation, you know, which sometimes you can't do unless you talk about it with, with someone. The other thing you said that he said, if I got it was, you know, you'd be talking about something and he'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute, go back to that thing, you know, that you said about X. Why do you think that is helpful? So I think that he was all along keeping mental notes or physical mm -hmm. notes of all the things that I kind of brought up and things that were brought up multiple times were clearly things that even if they were weeks apart or yeah. in different conversations, he was kind of looking at themes. And those themes were kind of the foundation of the much bigger work that I did, um, mm -hmm. or that we did. And the thing that I appreciate about my therapist was that even when things were uncomfortable mm -hmm. or could be uncomfortable to talk about, he never shied away from asking me the questions and, um, mm -hmm. or he would even say, okay, this is a little strange for me to ask. And it may, it's kind of uncomfortable for me to say this out loud, but I'm going to go ahead and say it. You tell me how you feel about it. It was very transparent. Mm -hmm. And like he showed vulnerability while he was asking me to be vulnerable. And it was a very natural flow. And there were times where I said, no, I'm not absolutely not talking about that today. And he yeah. respected that and, and backed off. And then it got to the point where I could say, hey, can we go back to that thing that I didn't want to talk about? Because I'm ready now. And wow. it just, it, I mean, wow. all, all of the things that I worked through, yep. I didn't even know that there were to work through. It was really life-changing. Like, so, actually, I'm also making a list, mental list of characteristics of a therapist that, that you found to be helpful. And, and actually, probably a lot of people would. But I think one of the things when we talk about people, we talk with people about finding a therapist is it has to be a match, you know, and, and what are the, how do you know if it's helping? And so th some of the characteristics, uh, one of them seems like you said something in there, I thought like he sort of seemed to have a plan, you know, it, like it actually was work. He wasn't just talking. Yeah, I think that, and again, it all felt very organic. It felt very mm -hmm. kind of natural that the way things flowed. So it wasn't necessarily him creating an outline. Right. You know, it definitely was um, kind of this mental buckets of, of things that he wanted to kind of get to with me, but it never felt like, okay, so tomorrow we're going, or next week we're going to right. talk about that thing you said, you know, it, it was very organic and very conversational. And he was willing to let me, you know, if I had a week where things were just crazy at home and I just wanted to complain about home life, then I could do that. But then yeah. there were times where we actually worked. You know, and actually, as we're talking, plan might be the wrong word that I use. I, I mean, maybe it's almost sounding, and I'm trying to figure this out with you because I think it'd be, it's really helpful for people because a lot of people wonder, you know, is this the right therapist? And maybe it was it more like at times you felt like I have a therapist that knows what they're doing. There's a method to this. Do you know what I mean? Like what you're studying now, you know, there's a lot of work. Was there a time when it felt like that or, or no? 
I've, I always felt, I mean, initially I did not give him a lot of room to, yeah. I, I, I really was turned off by the fact that he was the opposite gender of me. And I just right, right. felt like that was a big barrier, which is my own issue. <laughs> but he definitely seemed, did seem like he knew what he was doing. And I, I thank him and have thanked him over and over for just being so, so good. And, you know, he often comes back with like, you're the one that did the work. I was just there to help facilitate it. But I really think that he was the right one for me and he was yeah. the right therapist for me. So, I mean, it, it does go both ways for sure. And I, I'm not somebody that normally can stand up and say like, you know what, what you just said really was not okay or what you, right. you know, but there were times where there were conversations that maybe I didn't appreciate his take on it. And I was able to say to him, like, that's actually wrong. Like, that's actually not, not what I was saying. And really, yep. there was just a lot of ability to be real, which is great. <laughs> and mean, so that, important, because if you're not being honest with your therapist, then there's not really a way for it to work. No, I, actually, that may be the most important thing. It all seems to lean toward, I don't know, a kind of trust, basically. I mean, there was this pacing. You were involved with the pacing of the of the therapy in a way that was helpful. But the feeling that came across as you were talking was, did it did it feel like there was trust? Absolutely. I think, mm -hmm. and I think that it it takes a while for that to build up, which for someone like me, I want I want there to be a quick fix. I want to be able to stitch it up and make it better. And I think that's the problem with therapy and with mental health in general is that there's not a, there's very often not a physical sign of anything. And so how do you know it's getting better? And how do you know how long it's going to take to heal? You know, there's, there's not a scab, there's not a, a scar that you can monitor the progress. I mean, it took a long time, but it's, it was so worth it. I wish I had been open to it and willing to do it sooner. I also talked to him a few times about if it would have had the same impact had I started in my 20s or 30s, you know, mm. my early 30s. Mm -hmm. I think I just needed to be in a place where I was, I had had enough experience as as a human, as a as a nurse, as a mom, as a wife, to really recognize yep. what I wanted from, from the rest of my life. It's an amazing story. I mean, frankly, you know, uh, going back, I mean, there are many times where you could have bailed, you know, that initial treatment, a lot of people would have, a lot of people in college wouldn't have reached out. And then again, in your adulthood, you know, getting yourself back into treatment. So it all really kind of makes sense now that your, you know, your career is even going that way. So you've got a, a couple years left of studying, you know, on your DNP, you're still going to be working, I imagine, in the hospital until then? Yes. And so what, you know, and I, I, we talked a little bit, I'm really interested that where the two worlds come together, because you've been involved, a lot of organizations have been trying to set up wellness programs during the, you know, during the pandemic. And I understand you're part of one in your organization. Um, how does that work? And what's your role there? So our organization set up this virtual resilience coach uh, sessions for, originally it was for incoming residents to the city of Philadelphia who were coming in during a pandemic. We were having a lot of riots and racial upheaval going on, like right in the middle of, of where our hospital is. And really just to kind of give them some ability to like talk about what their concerns were and everything like that. So these are employees. These are employees, mm -hmm. residents that were coming in from other areas. And I signed up. Not only do I want to help, but also it seems like 
could be good training for my future. Um, mm. If I'm, you know, having these one-on-one discussion sessions, mm-hmm. we also have. Um, so we were trained in uh, mental health first first aid, yeah. and really given some kind of parameters around what our sessions would be like. And yep. then they kind of opened the program up to any employee. They started seeing the effects of this pandemic just kind of dragging on in everyone from people who worked in the cafeteria to the maintenance people, to the nurses, to the doctors, social workers. So I am a resilience coach and I have clients who call in for any number of reason. And it's funny because it's very rarely about COVID. It's usually about Hmm. things that normally they've been able to handle. And for some reason, you know, I, I, I'm doing air quotes because for some reason they just can't handle it anymore. Uh And I always say it's because you've been handling COVID for this period of time. Uh And so Uh your reserves of managing stress are are already used up. They've been used up for a year's time. And um, it's nice because we have uh, supervision sessions with a trained therapist Uh once a week. So we can kind of talk about some client concerns that we have, or this is what I said, it seemed to kind of not go over very well. What do you think better wording would be? And just really, I feel like I've learned so much and had some really incredible experiences that I do feel like I'm making a difference for people. And it's just, it's been wonderful. So. Wow. That's, that's amazing, both at an organizational level, because I think a lot of organizations are trying this. Some, some places it's, it's working, some places it's not. And it sounds like it's working well in your organization. Um, glad you're part of it. I'm sure you're part of it working. And also, it seems like it's set up with a good forethought. Like, you know, you, you said you meet weekly with somebody who's a trained therapist, but it's also amazing because it brings these two worlds together, right? So, you know, you, we started with the the story of the, you being in between the front lines and leadership during the pandemic, but also there's, you know, your, your career is really moving toward psychiatric nurse uh, practitioner work. And this is sort of in between. It's really interesting. Um, so, you know, before we, we finish up, I just want to um, really thank you, not only for spending the time with us, but for doing the work you're doing. I mean, during the pandemic, you were speaking on behalf of a lot of people that were in those roles of being in between, you know, and none of the roles were easy. Leadership, you know, being on the front lines and being in between. But I think we could hear from you, the voice of people that were kind of caught in between and had to figure out a way to do the best you could at giving people information, keeping them safe, and managing the stress that you spoke about that that produces. But also really thankful that you're going into the psychiatric work that you're you're not you're clearly really great at, and you have your own personal story about and are willing to talk about it in a way that's really really effective. So before we we finished, any other thoughts or you things you would want uh, anything you'd want somebody on the podcast to, to hear not any specific thoughts I just I want to thank you for reaching out to people and, and trying to get stories out there about challenges triumphs experiences with mental health treatment and I think that 10 years ago I couldn't imagine having frank discussions about my eating disorder and you know suicidal thoughts and going to therapy I just it would never have come up and so the more we all talk about our experiences and the more that we're open to hearing from others, it really will make a change. It just requires people to be willing to be 
open and vulnerable about it. Yeah, I'm never going to forget. You know, you, you said um, I've gotten to the point where I'm comfortable talking about therapy like I'm talking about what I had for breakfast, you know, and I would wish that more of us and more people are able to get to that because it will be better for everybody. So again, thank you, Sarah, for spending the time with us and good luck and uh, stay in touch. Thank you. Lift the mask. Voices of heroes in a silent pandemic. With Dr. John Santo Pietro, executive produced by Kevin M. Lynch, The Quell Foundation, and Mod Worldwide. Managing producer Sarah Marshall, theme song by Musical Smile. The show is engineered and edited by Scott Waz and Steve Campagna of Philadelphia Post. Assistant audio editors Sinead Doyle and Vlad Radu. Film editor at Mod Worldwide. Voiceover artist, Sinead Doyle. Research and development by Colleen Lowe, Nick Lee, Jessica Ripper, and Caitlin Spurlock. Special thanks to Renee Wilk and Brittany McCormick as associate producers. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts, and you might hear your review on a future episode. Got a question? Email the Quell Foundation at liftthemask at thequellfoundation.org for sponsorship information or to find out how you can share your story as a guest on a future episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever great podcasts are downloaded. Also, please remember to share this podcast with friends and family who would enjoy this content. This is not a podcast for personal disclosure of suicidal thoughts or behaviors and is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or go to your nearest emergency department for assistance. Call 1-800-273-TALK, that's 1-800-273-8255, or text HELP to 741-741 if you're thinking about suicide. The Quell Foundation is a registered 501c3 not-for-profit organization benefiting the over 62 million Americans living with a mental health illness. Tax ID 47-512-7883.